Welcome, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on our latest podcast, and good to have you all with us. Uh, there's a gentleman who lives in Baltimore now who um, is a friend of the show and uh, is an incredible thinker and writer, I think, uh, NDB Colony, Nathan Colony to most of us, uh, is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor at Johns Hopkins and the author of a, more, a world more concrete real estate and the remaking of Jim Crow South Florida. He co-hosts a weekly podcast, Backstory, alongside Ed Ayers, Brian Ballow, Ballow, Brian Ballow, (laughs) and Joanne Friedman. Uh, And you can follow him at NDB Conley for tweet, uh, for Twitter. And uh, wrote this article in the Post, Washington Post. Charlottesville showed that liberalism can't defeat white supremacy; only direct action can. Uh, It was published on the fifteenth of August. And asked him to stop by to talk about this and the consequences of writing this and more. And Nathan, welcome. Good to have you back on the show. Uh, thank you so much, Mark. It's great to be here. So, uh, first of all, I, I, before we get to the heart of what's in here, sure. we were talking the other day about doing this conversation about your article, and you said, I really can't come in to talk about this tomorrow because I'm dealing with all these death threats and I have to take care of some things around death threats because of the article. So, what what happened? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, it, it seems as though the essay, um, the op-ed was picked up and circulated in conservative interwebs of various kinds. So rifle club sites, you know, some kind of uh, libertarian or right-wing intellectual sites, folks trying to engage the argument, but also folks really trying to just rant. Um, and about 2.45 in the afternoon, the day after the piece came out, um, I started getting these emails and they were, you know, your kind of standard stuff that one would imagine you would get in this day and time. Right. So I, you know, I as you may recall, wrote a piece in the wake of the uprising in Baltimore a couple of years ago for The New York Times. And I'd gotten a series of negative emails as well, but they were always kind of genteel hate in the sense of like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that your, your arguments are really, you know, unfounded. You know, how do you, um, th- that piece was about, you know, black culture is not the problem, which as many people, you know, began talking about urban unrest. They wanted to constantly bring back the s- statistics about out of wedlock births and various kinds. So I wrote a piece that basically challenged the notion that black culture was the problem. So people went back and doubled down on that argument, talking about out of wedlock this or that. So citing statistics and the like. This go around, was basically, you know, subject lines with expletives and epithets, you know, that then meandered into texts that included Confederate flags and, and, and basically were, you know, challenges to like, you know, come to Arizona and I can I need to bring more than rocks or let's get it on um, the title or uh, not the title, but the, the, the metaphor that I use to describe the interplay between capitalism, democracy and white supremacy was an analogy of paper, rock, scissors. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the comments, you know, basically is like, I believe more in Glock paper scissors. Right. So, I mean, it gets pretty, you know, touchy. Um, And so for me, I I went to my networks right away, um, obviously thinking about my own safety relative to the university, thinking about my safety, um, my recourse relative to the necessary attorneys, but also combing, you know, my own professional networks because I know a, a number of academics, you know, Tom Segru, historian at NYU, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, historian at Princeton, who's come under a, a lot of heat from, you know, right-wing circles, given her own, you know, public statements about what does one do when you get these kinds of 
threats. And so for me, it was important to take the time yesterday to like up my cybersecurity, to check in with, you know, necessary security people, just to kind of cross my T's and dot my I's, you know. Um, and then it makes it much easier should the time and occasion demand it for me to step back out in public and write again with having the necessary kind of moat around me and mine, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, but we are in a very weird place in America again. I mm-hmm. mean, this is, uh, you know, people make a lot of uh, perhaps reality that this is a minority of Americans or a minority of white Americans, but it also may be a substantial minority of white Americans. Right. 25, 30, 35% right. of the white world who hold these views. Right. So that's not a minuscule group. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, you know, there, there's actually been pretty good um, public opinion data on this. I mean, you think about um, Lawrence Bobo and Michael Dawson have done a lot of work on race and public opinion. And, you know, both of them basically established that the majority of white people in America at least believe that black people are on the whole intellectually inferior to their white counterparts. Now, they may attribute that to a variety of things like culture, upbringing. You know, not your fault. Right, exactly. <laughs> that kind of, I mean, there, right, may, right. there may be explanations, right, but right. if the idea is if you were to give a test to black people, by and large, they would fare worse than their white counterparts. And, and, and of course, so many of the arguments about affirmative action is that, well, black folk need this because they otherwise would not be able to cross the bar in so many aspects of American life and meritocracy, right? So, so all that to say that I think you can certainly argue that most white Americans are not going to be card-carrying members of neo-Nazi groups or Klan chapters, right. but that there is actually a very broad and wide swath of the population you know, certainly among whites. And one could argue that a number of African-Americans are deeply concerned about this as well, where if you were to put out a general metric of competency and ability, that black folk may have a hard time basically, you know, stacking up against their Asian counterparts, their white counterparts, and so forth. Um, So all that to say that that, to me, is a really important starting point for where someone like Donald Trump or where someone like Richard Spencer or where someone like, you know, David Duke or other, you know, kind of white supremacist folk um, would step into a dialogue with people and they might be given a certain amount of credibility. And I think it's just important to acknowledge that the belief in black inferiority is broad and wide, not just among kind of marginal groups. So one of the things as a historian. Yeah, please. I mean, you you, in your piece, um, you wrote a lot about what happened in the past and how it's tied to this. Whether it was, and this is the way you put this um, in the line, let me just read it. Lynching remained a form of public recreation well into the boom years of the Roaring Twenties. Until the 1940s, most police departments in America's fastest growing cities, even in the North, welcomed open members of the Ku Klux Klan. Then you go down to say a little later that then in April 68, amid a flurry of other quote-unquote rocks, Riots shook American cities following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. It took the rolling unrest, not the promise of further economic growth, to spur President Johnson and Congress to action. Within a week, they had passed the Fair Housing Act. So, uh, (laughs) but then you really use this as a way to kind of push the point that liberalism 
has to be vexed by something deeper before it moves. So make these connections for us as you're trying to make the argument. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, I, I had, um, you know. Vexed is a great word, by the way, that you used in the articles. Well. Oh, oh <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's always kind of put out there that you need to have dialogues and conversations and work within, quote, unquote, established channels, rely on, you know, political um, elites to basically broker deals and progress of various kinds. And what the piece ultimately is, is, is trying to do is acknowledge that, you know, we are in a dynamic tension where very clear impulses to exclude people of color in particular from the benefits of American society can largely only be met by direct action and challenges. So when I reference, for instance, lynching of the 1920s, that's an era when you have very clear and targeted racial violence that is not going to be stopped by simply growing the economy, right? In the March on Washington era of the mid-1960s, which I don't even reference this in the piece, one of the reasons why you have a March on Washington in 63 is because the economy has actually gone through a massive post-war boom, and the benefits of that boom have not been democratically allocated to people of color in particular, right? So this, the, the March for Jobs and Freedom is absolutely about opening up some of the access to the prosperity. And, and what I would argue, or what I do argue in the piece, is that we have a pretty consistent set of examples, era after era, where the economy may be doing just great. But there are whole swaths that are not included. And that lack of inclusion is what then prompts these flare-ups. I mean, Martin Luther King himself said the, po- the problem is not poverty. It's poverty in the midst of plenty, right? It's, it's knowing that there's, there are other corners of, the, of the, the country that are actually doing quite well while you're catching hell. Um, and so it, it was really important for me to try to convey that we're in a moment now, man. Where even, you know, the previous president, Barack Obama, you know, talks about, you know, growing the pie, the language of rising tides, lifting all boats, the notion of economic programs that simply try to, quote unquote, create jobs in a general sense without any real discussion of the kinds of jobs that are created, right? The low paying jobs that are oftentimes created in these various economic growth schemes. All of that is simply sowing the seeds for the need for more unrest for more direct action, for more really frank, bald, open talk about things like white supremacy and discrimination. Because what we're noticing now in this moment is that white supremacists basically have taken liberals at their word. We created a a context where everybody was supposed to be able to just celebrate their cultural difference at the same time, right? If you just make space for multiculturalism, you can have Hispanics, you can have African Americans, you can have Asian Americans all at the table. White boys are saying, well, we're white. We want to be at the table, too. We want to be able to celebrate our whiteness, talk about white identity. White lives matter. They're using the language of multiculturalism, and then people are getting really you know, upset, and they're bristling. And, and there's a sense of, like, well, what are we supposed to tell these people? Our vocabulary is not in a position under multiculturalism to tell them you can't celebrate being white. <laughs> but if you actually think historically, as opposed to just about cultural representation, say, well, what has white actually meant? Well, white has actually meant the creation of different corners of power that are based on bondage around slavery, that are based on expropriation. People in Texas in the 1940s who were coming from Mexico, entering the country as immigrants or Mexican-Americans, explicitly asked for Caucasian rights, quote unquote, right? Because they knew that to be white and to get that label would give you an exemption from the worst aspects of Jim Crow. So white was always about an exemption from the worst aspects of society. That's what its meaning essentially derives from, right? And so we should not be surprised now that people are using that language in our midst. And we're kind of flat-footed to engage it because we told everybody, really since the mid-1970s, that we should be able to celebrate cultural difference without really acknowledging the fact that, like, white as an identifier was constantly about power over people of color. 
That's what the meaning of whiteness meant, getting access to mortgages, getting access to certain kinds of jobs at the expense of other people. And so, and so all I would say is that, you know, just to put a, a final point on it, if we're really going to have a discussion about what the moment calls for now, part of it is about an honest conversation of what white identity has always meant, what it has, what it has meant for people under Jim Crow, under you know, slavery, but also thinking that we might not be able to get out of this problem by simply allowing for more conversations, more multiculturalism, more diversity commissions and converse, you know, it, it, it actually has to be something more substantive. So the, I'm curious what you think that is. I mean, because if, yeah. you, if, you, well, if you think about whiteness, most white people don't think about whiteness. Right. Yeah, they don't have to. Yeah. They don't have to, right? Right. So it's not a conversation. Most <laughs> white people do not have conversations about race. Right. Um, they just doesn't come up. Um, and so, and it does more than just doesn't come up. There's no, there's no reason for them to have it. Right. Right? So when the movements of the 60s, 50s and 60s began, and um, people were demanding space for black culture, mm-hmm. or for native culture, mm-hmm. or for Chicano culture, or right. whatever that, right? Right. Part of it was so then. So the the liberal response was to create multiculturalism. Sure. Right. Which, on its face, had some very positive reasons to exist and right. to celebrate people's lives. I mean, you grow up as a Jewish American, you celebrated being a Jewish American or an Italian American because right. that was a cultural heritage that didn't quite fit into the Protestant norm of America. Sure. You didn't think of it as white. You didn't think of it as white. You thought of it as ethnic European coming in, preserving their ethnicity as an ethnic European right. in the face of this Protestant mass white culture. Sure. But you didn't think about white either. Mm. Right? <laughs> Having said that, but what we never did and what we haven't done, right. I think, is to understand that to be American is to be defined by your blackness. Yes. Your Chicano ness, yeah. your Native American ness, or whatever those words are, right? right? Right. That 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 we have always been defined by what we refuse to believe we were defined by. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what we've never even talked about or wrestled with. Right. So then they give people spending space saying, all of a sudden these black folks coming in and saying we have black culture, black this, black that, but black, and they're in the movies, they're everywhere. We want our whiteness back. Right. Which you never really had. Right. So, <laughs> right? right. So I mean, right. so so what is that? What do you think that takes us, given with the conclusion you came to? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a bit of a sorry to go on so far with that. No, 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 no. It's 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 a heady but but necessary discussion, right? I mean, because I think what what we're seeing, I mean, the way the way that I've come to describe, for instance, the concerns about Confederate statuary, is that you know we're in the process now, man, of like basically redecorating our democracy, right? And 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 it's really rubbing people the wrong way because the idea was like, well, monuments are supposed to be sites and representations of consensus. So no matter what you think about slavery, we can all agree that Robert E. Lee was an honorable man. No matter what you think about, you know, George Washington's, you know, owning of own a judge and, 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 and the stories of him taking the teeth out of slaves to make his own like dentals, you know, <laughs> implants. Right. I mean, you know, regardless of, you know, Let Thomas, that for two seconds, <laughs> right, right, right. right. Or, or, or Thomas Jefferson's, you know, very well known transgressions, um, you know, over, over over his female slaves. Right. That these are still people who are consensus figures and we should all rally behind them and, and really, you know, embrace them. Um, you know, there, there are very few black consensus figures in 
American iconography. They certainly made Martin Luther King a consensus figure right. that we can kind of get behind. He gave a really great speech on the steps of the Washington Monument, but we we're not going to talk a whole lot about his actually, you know, dabbling in reparations talk, right, or, t- or talking about anti-poverty measures. Well, we're talking about capitalism. Or capitalism, right, exactly. Or socialism, which he did. <laughs> yeah, right, don't, don't tell nobody. Um <laughs> And, or, or as as I you know oftentimes point out, like one of the things about the Black Power movement and 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 it's an effort to try to reinstate this now with the Black Lives Matter moment is making the value of Black life an actual consensus issue, right? Mm-hmm. So that everyone should agree that we can you know support people who are Black who matter and who should not be killed indiscriminately for whatever reason. So all this to say, man, I think you know I think you rightly point out that so much of what is defining people's relative identities are really, you know, forms of negation. And, and there's actually a really, you know, wide and broad historical literature about the fact that most people's identities in this country are determined by their proximity to blackness. How black are you? Can you distance yourself from African-Americans culturally, certainly residentially, at the level of employment and kind of achievement? Um, you know, there, there's all these ways in which blackness is a kind of fixed negative marker against which immigrant groups and Americans all measure their success or failure. Right. Um, and that and that reality is something that requires some serious discussion, some unpacking. Why have black spaces been spaces that people are constantly trying to get out of? What's happening there? Who's, you know, making their money off of these spaces? Who is policing those spaces? I mean, this is where I think the conversation about monuments is actually a great starting point because the question of whether or not we can create physical representations of a positive black people and of iconography of Harriet Tubman or Frederick Douglass or whoever, the, the, the possibility of that is still, you know, pretty far off. And we're trying to take a step in that direction. But first, we have to be willing to say that, you know what, maybe Robert E. Lee is not a con- consensus figure. Right. Maybe maybe Thomas Jefferson ought not to be a consensus figure. There are actually competing narratives about who these people are. And once you take these monuments down it actually then at least at that point opens up a discussion about who these figures that we've been honoring really are, how did they, you know, um, uh, really live? What were the consequences of their actions? Um, And and, and for me, at least, it opens up a discussion of history, doesn't close it down. No, no. Maybe that's one of the ways where Trump was right. When he said, we take the Confederate monuments down, does that mean you take the Washington Monument down? Does that mean you take the Jefferson Monument down? Right. And I think that that raises a question that we need to understand the contradictions that gave birth to this country. Right. Absolutely. Right? Part of the reason that we're facing such a dilemma, I think, and it's, it's part of what you wrote about, I think, I think, is that we had these beautiful democratic egalitarian principles written into the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, and mm-hmm. our Bill of Rights. Right. But they were written for a group of white propertied men. Right. To say, we can, we, we're, we're smart, we have this, and this is our democracy, we can control it for everybody, everybody can be happy. Right. But it was so. It was based on slavery and enslavement right. and on genocide. So, right. it was like a beautiful facade with a hollow core. Right, and that's why we're shattering right now because of the hollow core. Right. So maybe it's time to ha- how do how do we generate that discussion? Yeah, and that that that, that about what how we, the contradictions of how we began and use that to build something new. That 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 that's a great question, and and that's largely what I was trying to grapple with in the op-ed because. You know, so the beauty of, of of liberal rhetoric 
is that it always has a kind of universalist cadence to it, right? That, that, that the tone of it is all men are created equal. If you think about the early founding documents, all cultures ought to be celebrated. If you think about multiculturalism in the, in the late 20th century. But as you just pointed out, even the rhetoric itself is meant to basically conceal the fact that at the time of that articulation, that's simply not the case on the ground. All men are not equal on the ground. All cultures are not the same on the ground. And there are enough people who know the truth and who can hear that holler rhetoric when you say, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and keep working on these black cooperatives in, the, in Newark or in Chicago or in these places because... Or in Baltimore, people or, are trying or, to. Or Baltimore, right? 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 Like we have to set these things up. Or even during you know, the, the founding moment, people who are recognizing the contradictions of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution in the midst of slavery. Fre- Frederick Douglass clearly you know, seeing the hollowness of the 4th of July as a holiday, right, in, in terms of what it's meant to celebrate. Um, and so, you know, for me, man, what I, what I, when I saw over the last couple years concerns about the naming of, like, Woodrow Wilson on, on buildings at Princeton University, concerns about, um, you know, Black Lives Matter uh, activists on various college campuses trying to raise the level of engagement about whether or not racism was still a problem both on campuses and off, right? There, there's a way in which, you know, when we decided to embrace multiculturalism, what we basically said, and this is in the, the legal discussions of the case law around affirmative action, you're not allowed to redress the wrongs of the past. The past has no place in discussions of university admissions, in discussions of employment, Mm. in discussions of housing. The Supreme Court said in 1978 in its Bakke decision, you are not allowed to build American institutions in ways that actually engage the history of discrimination. You can hold as as, as a personal institutional value multiculturalism and celebrate that all day, but you're not allowed to even think or build institutions historically minded. It's a powerful bind. Right. Because now we're left. And, and, and what's funny is that so much of affirmative action programs as they're being worked out, are people still thinking, gosh, we haven't had black students in our undergraduate college since its founding in any, in any discernible way. How do we basically alleviate that problem? So they try to work around some of the language. But the reality is that we're not allowed to profess openly that we have a history of discrimination, slavery. Jim Crow, that to be redressed. Certainly in the case of like reparations, that, that, that language is so far from the discussion because we're bound by this set of Supreme Court rulings that tell us that you're not allowed to think about history and when you're building American institutions. That's why historians and history are so important to the present. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So th- 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 let me just throw this out here. We talked about this before we walked into the studio. I had this intense conversation with one of my former producers. Mm. Uh, Bobby Marvin Holmes, mm. really incredible young man uh, who worked with me for a bunch of years, became producer at First Edition after that with Sean Yost, and, but his a documentary filmmaker made his Live Young Blood and this other film about uh, saving the lives of young black men in the community from, from violence, very powerfully done, um, and as a mentor to young people across the city to try to stem the violence and to heal stuff. One thing he and I were writing back and forth about and talked about on the way over here by phone was that, okay, so the press gives us these Confederate monuments to worry about now, mm-hmm. which is great. Mm-hmm. But what does that have to do with the lives of inner city, poor, black, working class people who are mired in hopelessness and devastation, devastated communities where nobody cares about, that we have Port Covington, no, not passing the $15 minimum wage, uh, passing laws in Baltimore that... Uh, say you have to have a mandatory minimum if you're caught with a gun without mm-hmm. any understanding any ex- extensive uh, circumstances that might be involved in this right. circumstances. 
And so, so, so why do we care about these monuments if this is happening every day in my community right. and, and, and nobody seems to care? And you have a councilman like Costello, who represents Bolton Hill, who goes, oh, let's take down all the monuments, but then votes against the $15 minimum wage, wants to give rich white people all the money for Port Covington, not caring what happens to black working class <laughs> community, and, right. and, uh, and it's four mandatory minimums. So how do you respond to that contradiction with your analysis of liberalism? Absolutely. No, it, it's, 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 it's a critical question. Um, so let, let, me, let me give it to you this way. There was a time in this country's history where if you had a black attorney in a courtroom with a white judge, the judge could address that black attorney by calling him nigger. He could talk about the defendant. You're a nigger client, such and such and such, in an open forum of American mm-hmm. jurisprudence, right? It was totally legitimate to be able to do that. That's not true anymore. There were absolutely institutions in place that we know, markers in place that designated areas for whites only and colors only, and those signs came down. One of the most important contributions of the civil rights movement was forcing us to revise our language and how we dealt with each other in the civic sphere, right? This was an important contribution. It it was a a real win. Now, what happened, as we know, is that you had the emergence of what, you know, people tend to call now this kind of colorblind rhetoric. And we found a whole host of synonyms for black people to talk about them in negative ways if we wanted, right? There are all these ways in which you can get around the questions of deep inequality that were embedded in the Jim Crow system, housing discrimination, employment discrimination, telling somebody to not drop N-bombs in a courtroom is not going to deal with all the black women who are forced to be domestics, all the people who are, who are confined in these neighborhoods. Again, all the black folk who are on chain gangs and still in, in chain gangs, right? That doesn't deal with that, but it's a, an important step. And I think one of the things that happened is we took the kind of sugar over the cyanide pill in the 1970s and 80s, and, and we believed, and we, and we still largely believe, that if you, as long as you don't have somebody who's speaking in the old-time language, they're doing the right things, right? What, what, make, what makes the Nazi resurgence or the Klan resurgence so scary is these are people who are actually willing to just resurrect a little bit the old-time language from the era of Jim Crow. And that's what really makes them kind of anathema to American society. Not that they can, like, engage in employment discrimination at the workplace that we're not really <laughs> enforcing anyway, right? So I, say, I, say, I say all this to say that there's absolutely a danger right now of people treating the taking down of Confederate monuments as the sugar over the cyanide pill, right? There's a way that we could focus on that and be like, ah, yes, we have now made the progress necessary to stop thinking about these other deep questions. And all I would say is that if we remember that the changing of the language was not the end of the story for the fight against racial discrimination in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, the taking down of Confederate statuary is certainly not, not the end of the story now. I think it actually provides, if we're, if we're smart about it, a stepping stone to reaching for higher fruit, right? So we can look now at the fact that the the statuary in the city has changed. There's actually, believe it or not, at one Baltimore area private school as recently as two years ago, they were giving students handouts with, you know, discussions of Robert E. Lee as an honorable man, where the school mascot was dressed in a Confederate uniform, wearing, uh, flying a Confederate flag. This is on a homework assignment at a Baltimore, you know, private school and, you know, inside the city limits. I don't think they're going to have that as a homework assignment anymore <laughs> after after this, you know, conversation. Um, but I, but I do think that, like, like you said, it, it's there's always this danger of resting on our laurels. And, and one final point on this. The, the kinds of politicians who are now swept up in this moment who have to basically have no choice but to right. co-sign on the taking down of statues. Now, that's considered beyond the pale. 
And that's a remarkable thing. I mean, people, and, I, and I'm actually watching this, Mark, this week. Like, I'm, I'm watching people who on Monday, <laughs> when the conversation first popped post Charlottesville over the weekend, believe one thing about statues. And here on Friday, they have to actually believe something else because Baltimore did something and Durham did something and Charlottesville did something. And that's incredible. And I'm talking about historians who were like, oh, yeah, we have to kind of lay these monuments up and have a public conversation and such and such and such. And they're like, you know what? The moment is now. The hour is now. They have to come down. They, they've literally moved in the span of four days to an uncompromising position. I had this happen with myself, where I, had, I, I literally went through, not this week, but over the course of several months, I went through a series of, of thought exercises. Where I was like, you know what? Yeah, diversity of opinion is not, it's not the place for that now. Now, now it's time to actually take a much more decisive step. And so, so it, it's, it's, it's critical, I think, to have this step. But it's also a mistake to believe that this is the last step. Anybody who does, I think, is being disingenuous. Nathan Conley, I'm glad you're here today. Thanks so much for coming by. No, thank you. It's been good a to be great here. conversation. Thank you. Looking forward to many more. I hope so. Uh, Nathan Conley, of course, is the Herbert Baxter Adams Professor, uh, uh, Adams Associate Professor of History. Is that right? That's right, yeah. At Johns Hopkins University. Uh, catch him at the Backstory Podcast. Uh, it comes out every week. When does it come out? Friday. Um, it's, it, we're dropping one today, actually, so about, about Charlottesville. Yeah. It'll be a couple <laughs> days ago, but it drops today on Friday, so you can catch that. You yeah. want it, it's really good. It's gotten a lot better, maybe because Nathan's in it now. But <laughs> And his latest book, A World More Concrete, Real Estate and the Remaking of Jim Crow South Florida, uh, which is where he grew up. Yeah. Nathan, good to have you here. Thanks so much. Thank you, Mark. Well, this is Mark Steiner, folks, and thank you for joining us for our podcast today. You can download it at steinershow.org or your favorite podcasting app. And please let us know what you think. Write to me at mark at steinershow.org. That's Mark, M-A-R-C, at S-T-E-I-N-E-R show.org. We'll be back in a couple days with a new podcast. Produced and edited by Calvin Perry.